fifth chapter of James, be reading verses 17 and 18 from the New King James Version. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. I lay no claim to that problem. Because <laughs> at least it's on. For 442 days, I was deprived. For 442 days, I suffered. For 442 days, I was excommunicated. I was disfellowshipped. I was, for all intents and purposes, lost. Because for 442 days, I could not dine inside a Chick-fil-A. <laughs> but last week, the doors of select locations reopened, and like the father of the prodigal son, I went and celebrated with my friends. And it was glorious. And I went every day last week. I am not joking. <laughs> I ate inside a Chick-fil-A every day last week. And I'll probably do it again this week. <laughs> now I share my plight of not being able to eat inside a Chick-fil-A jokingly. I call it suffering, I call it pain, I call it a deprivation. But the truth is, there are a lot of people who, who struggle because something is scarce in their life. And when there is a scarcity of something that is vital, we call it a famine. The term famine literally refers to an extreme scarcity of food. And a, a, a famine of that type is not something that the vast majority of us have ever experienced, thankfully. But there are people around the world who do endure legitimate famines, who, who endure this deprivation of food, this scarcity of something to eat. Right now, according to the uh, World Food Program, the countries of Yemen, South Sudan, Burkina Faso, and portions of Nigeria are on the brink of famine, if not already experiencing famine. But metaphorically, a famine is not just limited to a, a scarcity of food, because the term famine can also be used in reference to any extreme and general scarcity or any type of great shortage. And that's the sense in which I, I'm using this term today and in the weeks to come, because here's the thing, we all go through periods of famine. Just last year, many of us endured a social famine. 
The COVID-19 pandemic made social interaction scarce in many of our lives and forcing us to go days, weeks, even months for some of us without being physically present with our family and friends. Right now, some of us are going through a health famine, if we could use such a term. We're facing medical conditions that make good health scarce in our lives. And we're having to undergo treatments and tests and procedures, all in an effort to restore that level of health we desire. Right now, some of you are going through what could best be defined as an emotional famine. You're dealing with some crisis in your home, some crisis in your marriage, some crisis in your personal life that has made peace scarce in your life. Over the years, many of us have endured financial famine. We've encountered market crashes and job losses and economic hardships that have made financial stability scarce in our life. And here's the thing about such famines. They can dramatically affect your faith, both positively and negatively. How you navigate a time of difficulty, a time of scarcity, will have tremendous long-term implications on your faith. And so I got to thinking that it would be extraordinarily beneficial for us to engage in a study of what it takes to maintain our faith in times of famine. Because having come off of this pandemic, having endured months of uniqueness, months of abnormalcy, months of frustrations, months of no dine-in Chick-fil-A, it's certain to have taken a toll on some of us spiritually. But instead of doing an exegetical study of particular passages that relate to this subject, or, or instead of doing a, a topical study of every, uh, of every verse, of every uh, subject that could be addressed, I've decided that what I would like to do is a character study of a particular individual who endured a time of famine. So for the next several weeks, we're going to spend our time studying the life of Elijah. All in an effort to discover what it will take to maintain our faith in the face of great difficulty. And to understand why I've chosen to study the life of Elijah, we have to engage in a little bit of a history lesson this morning. So bear with me as we endure some background information. See, we need to understand the circumstances under which Elijah's story began. And the first thing you need to know about Elijah's circumstances is that he prophesied during the period of the divided kingdom. Now, you may remember that there were 12 tribes of Israel that were all united in one single kingdom over which God allowed some kings to reign. The first king God put in position over the kingdom of Israel 
was Saul. Now, Saul failed God, so God decided to anoint a new king, and that second king he chose was David. David delighted God. David was a man after God's own heart. And so David's dynasty was established by God. God promised to retain one of David's descendants on the throne of Israel. And so the third king of the United Kingdom was David's own son, Solomon. But according to 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 9-13, through 13, we learn that God became angry with Solomon because Solomon's heart had turned away from him. And Solomon did not keep the Lord's commands. And as a consequence of Solomon's persistent sin, God decided to tear the kingdom away from him by dividing what was the united kingdom of Israel into two kingdoms, which would be known as the northern and southern kingdoms. The northern kingdom was comprised of ten tribes. Its capital was Samaria, and it's frequently referred to in Scripture simply as Israel. The southern kingdom was comprised of the two remaining tribes. Its capital city was Jerusalem, and it was typically called Judah. Now, Elijah prophesied during this time when the kingdom was divided into northern and southern kingdoms. More specifically, Elijah prophesied in the northern kingdom of Israel. Now, it may not matter much to you whether Elijah, or any prophet for that matter, was sent to the southern kingdom or the northern kingdom, but it does make a big difference. That's because while the southern kingdom of Judah had some kings, at least eight out of their 20 kings, they had some kings who did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. The northern kingdom had none. Not one of the kings, the 19, I believe it is, kings that reigned over the northern kingdom did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. They were all considered bad kings. Pictured on the screen is a graph showing the kings that reigned over Israel. And you'll see in the second column, which is kind of a yellowish-orange color, it identifies whether they were good or bad. They're all bad. They all failed God in one way or another. To understand why the northern kingdom failed to produce any good kings, you need to go back to the very first king. The northern kingdom's first king was Jeroboam. Jeroboam was specifically chosen by God to reign over the ten tribes of the northern kingdom after the death of Solomon. And you would think that being chosen by God, being hand-selected by God to be king, would make you more susceptible to doing his will, but that was not the case with Jeroboam. You see, after he became king, Jeroboam became a little um, paranoid, if you will. He was constantly afraid to lose his job. The reason he feared for his job is because all of his citizens had to make pilgrimages to the southern kingdom three times a year. He could not keep them from visiting the southern kingdom. Do you know why? Because under Mosaic law, 
Every Israelite was expected to travel to Jerusalem for one of three big religious festivals. And because his kingdom did not include Jerusalem, that meant his citizens were going to travel across the border and go down to the southern kingdom for those major religious events. And here's his thought process. If my people keep going across that border, keep going down to Jerusalem, they're going to long for Jerusalem. They're going to long for us to reunite these two kingdoms. And guess what? If the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom reunite, guess who's going to be out of a job? It's not going to be the descendant of David who sits on the throne down there. It's going to be me. So here's what Jeroboam did. And you can read about this in 1 Kings chapter 12 verses 26 through 31. Jeroboam decided that he needed to start a new religion. He needed to create a religion that his people would adhere to in his territory. Now, it still claimed to some degree to worship God, but guess what he did? He went back to Mount Sinai and said, guess what? They had a golden calf. I'm going to have two. And I'm going to set one up in Bethel, and I'm going to set one up in Dan. Bethel in the southern part of his, his territory, Dan in the northern part. And guess what, people? That's where you can go worship. Don't go to Jerusalem anymore. Go to these two locations with these idols that I've built, and there you can worship God. And so Jeroboam established a new religious system with new places of worship, with new objects of worship, with new priests, all in an effort to prevent the citizens of the northern kingdom from going to Jerusalem. And Jeroboam's creation of this new unsanctioned religious system came to be known in the Bible as the sin of Jeroboam. And every single king in the north continued that policy. Every single king in the north disobeyed God because they authorized and supported the worship of of an idol. And they encouraged their citizens to not worship God according to God's parameters. And so that's why every single king in the northern kingdom turned out to be bad. But there's one that stood out above them all. See, it's one thing to be a northern kingdom prophet you know if you're a northern kingdom prophet, then you're not prophesying under favorable conditions. But it's a whole other thing when you're a northern kingdom prophet who's assigned to King Ahab. That's because nobody opposed God as intentionally as Ahab did. Open your Bibles, if you will, to 1 Kings chapter 16. I want you to read with me the initial description of King Ahab. 1 Kings chapter 16, we will begin reading in verse 29 and go through verse 33. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. 
And as if, as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. That's Ahab's legacy. Ahab is the king who provoked God to anger more than any other king before him. Ahab is notorious. And here's what's fascinating. When Ahab becomes king, it's the first time that a northern kingdom's king a northern kingdom's king's spouse gets mentioned. The first time the marriage of a northern king gets mentioned in the Bible is Ahab's marriage to Jezebel. The reason Jezebel gets mentioned is because Jezebel was so influential. Skip over to 1 Kings chapter 21 real quick, and I want you to see one verse. 1 Kings chapter 21, verse 25. Because there, this one statement is powerful. It tells us about the relationship between King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. We're told in 1 Kings 21, verse 25, that there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do wickedness in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, stirred him up. As one preacher said, Ahab may have had the reign, but Jezebel held the reins. She was the behind-the-scenes power when Ahab was on the throne. What Jezebel wanted, Jezebel got. Jezebel was ultimately in control, and Ahab was following her lead. And here's the thing about Jezebel. She had a very specific agenda. Her agenda was to make the worship of Baal the state-sponsored religion of the northern kingdom. Now, Baal was the god of the Canaanites. He was responsible for fertility in particular. But more importantly, he was the god of rain in their culture. And in an agricultural society, that's kind of a big deal because rain is necessary. If you don't have rain, you don't produce crops. And if you don't produce crops, you don't eat. Therefore, the god of rain was an important deity in a pagan culture like Canaan. Because that deity was, in their eyes, essentially responsible for sustaining life. And here's how Jezebel began making the worship of Baal the state religion of the northern kingdom. She did two things. First off, we're told in 1 Kings chapter 18 and verse 19 that she financially supported 850 prophets of Baal. Financially supported them. They ate at the king's table, or at Jezebel's table, I should say. This meant that she was using government funds to support the individuals who were responsible for communicating with and leading the people in the worship of Baal. And here's the other thing she did. She initiated the state-supported execution of the prophets of Yahweh. According to the report of Obadiah in 1 Kings chapter 18 and verse 13, Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord, and though Obadiah protected some, 
She had killed so many that Elijah came to believe that he was the only one left alive. What that tells us is that it wasn't enough for Jezebel to support the worship of all. It tells us that she went so far as to eliminate the worship of Yahweh. And so the third key thing to know about Elijah's circumstances is that he prophesied during the reign of King Ahab and Ahab's wife, Queen Jezebel. This is the background to Elijah's story. Elijah enters a time of spiritual famine. A time when faith in God was at an all-time low. A time when people in powerful positions tried to eliminate God from the social conscience. A time when the vast majority of people were worshiping and serving false gods and the people of God remained silent because they learned that it was easier just to go along to get along. Does such a time sound familiar to you? That's why we're talking about Elijah. That's why I've chosen to spend these weeks just studying his life. Because Elijah's times are not that different from our own. And as James chapter 5 and verse 17 says, Elijah was a man just like us. Elijah's not a superhero. Elijah's not extraordinary. Elijah is just like you and I. And he's dealing with circumstances just like you and I. And so there's something we can learn from Elijah. There's something we can gain from examining his life. There's a reason he becomes so prominent in Scripture. There's a reason that he becomes so important in the story of the Bible. There's a reason that when Jesus ascends the Mount of Transfiguration, it's not just Moses up there, but Elijah. Not David, not Abraham, not any other major figure of the Old Testament, but Elijah standing up there. So we're going to look at Elijah's life in hopes that we can learn some things about maintaining faith in difficult circumstances. And this morning, as we come to the realization that Elijah is living during a spiritual famine, I want us to notice the two things he does to begin combating that spiritual famine right here in the first verse of 1 Kings chapter 17. So read that with me, if you will. 1 Kings chapter 17 and verse 1. This is the start of Elijah's story, and we're only focusing on one verse today. 1 Kings chapter 17 and verse 1. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Now here's what's interesting. Elijah just kind of appears out of nowhere. There's no backstory. There's no introduction. All we're told at the start of 1 Kings 17 is that Elijah walks in and speaks to King Ahab. Now this is kind of interesting because the the Jews, they loved genealogy. Throughout the Old Testament, you will come across the genealogy of many of God's heroes. The Israelites kept accurate family trees because they needed to know which tribe you were from. 
One's lineage to the twelve tribes of Israel was sacred to them. But Elijah doesn't have a genealogy. His family tree is never identified. We don't know who his parents are. We don't know what tribe he is from. Some scholars believe that he may not have even been an Israelite. And they don't know where Tishbe is. All we know is that Gilead was on the east side of the Jordan River rather than the west. We know so little about Elijah's background. But for all we don't know, there are two things we do know. We know that when everyone else remained silent during this spiritual famine, we know that Elijah took a stand for God. Here's the thing. Elijah didn't show up in 1 Kings 17 to negotiate. Elijah didn't arrive on the scene to have a dialogue with Ahab about their competing religions. He didn't come to the throne room of the king of the northern kingdom to find a way for their two systems to cohabitate. He came to publicly declare that there was only one God and to prove that Baal was an imposter. One of the ways Elijah declared God's supremacy was simply by his name. In our culture, names don't always possess the depth of meaning that they did during biblical times. Back then, names stood for something. In particular, one's name was chosen to serve as a, a statement of belief by the one who named him or her. And Elijah's name is actually comprised of two terms. The first is El, E-L, and the second term is Yah, the J-A-H at the end. El is the Hebrew word for God for the term God. Jah is a shorthand way of referring to the name of God, Yahweh. So the name Elijah is believed to mean, my God is Yahweh. It's a statement of belief about who it is he serves. So when Elijah's parents named him, they chose a name that demonstrated faith in the one and the only God. Now, Elijah was not involved in choosing his name as far as we know, so you might feel inclined to contend that Elijah's name was just a wonderful coincidence. But I find it fascinating that you can journey through the Old Testament and you can find at least five references to unnamed prophets and four to unnamed men of God who appear on the scene to announce God's will on a matter. See, I believe it's entirely possible that Elijah could have shown up as an unnamed prophet, never give his name to Ahab, just show up, announce what he needs to announce, and leave. I think it's part of the story for Elijah's name to be known because the message Elijah has brought coincides with his name. The message of Elijah to Ahab is that my God is Yahweh. That the God is Yahweh. I want you to imagine for a moment Ahab sitting in his throne room. He's enjoying a wonderful day as king. And he's just, uh, maybe he's just sitting there um, in his royal palace reviewing the architectural drawings of his next temple to Baal. 
Meanwhile, the prophets of Baal are over there in the royal dining room feasting on a buffet of splendor. And his soldiers are out in the countryside hunting down any remaining prophets of Yahweh. Imagine that he's sitting there, and the next thing he knows, one of his servants comes in the room and says, Hey, hey king, there's somebody here who wants to see you. There's somebody who wants to speak to you. And Ahab asks, well, who is it? And the servant says, well, his name is, my God is Yahweh. Imagine, imagine how that would have affected Ahab in the moment. That the person that wants to talk to him is un, does not acknowledge the God that Ahab served. And the man that wants to talk to him is there to pronounce a message from the God that Ahab is trying to wipe off the face of the earth. You see, Elijah's name spoke his convictions. Elijah's name was part of his message, but it wasn't the entirety of his message because when Elijah showed up, he had a one-sentence sermon. And I know you wish I had one-sentence sermons. But Elijah had a powerful one sentence sermon. Look again at 1 Kings 17, verse 1. Elijah said, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. The first words out of Elijah's mouth are, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives. Elijah declares that his God is alive. And that's a direct insult to Baal. Because the one thing you need to know about Baal is that they believed he died every year. You see, it's an agricultural society, and Baal is the god of rain in their eyes. But they live in a climate where they have a rainy season for a few months, and then they have a longer dry season. If you serve a god who produces rain, and every year you go several months without rain, what's your god doing? And so they reasoned that during that dry season, Baal had died, and they would have to resurrect him every year. Elijah shows, excuse me, Elijah shows up. Elijah shows up, appears before the king, and says, My God is alive. My God lives. My God doesn't die. And you know what? My God's about to control the weather. See, Elijah appears on the scene out of nowhere, and he takes a stand for the one true God. He declares the one thing about his God that the other gods can't say, that his God lives. Elijah's taking a stand in the throne room of a king who's trying to eliminate the God of Israel. He takes a stand as he appears before the powers that be, the powers that are trying to remove any remnants of Yahweh from social conscience, trying to get everyone to worship the idols that they have put in place. Elijah takes a stand. Elijah combated spiritual famine with a very decisive and a very deliberate position. Like Moses drawing a line in the sand at Mount Sinai, and like Daniel choosing not to defile himself with the king's food, Elijah appears on the scene and he says, enough is enough. 
I'm not tolerating this anymore. I'm going to do something about this. I'm standing up for my God. In the midst of a culture that's going through a spiritual famine, that has to be the starting point for every follower of God. That we stand up for our God, even even in the presence of those who don't acknowledge Him. I want you to think for a moment, when was the last time you stood up for God? Have you ever stood up for God? And, and I'm not really talking about standing up for Him in the context of your Christian family. I mean standing up for Him publicly. We live in a culture that has Christian roots. And so maybe making that stand doesn't, ha- does, doesn't present itself nearly as often as it might in another country. But we're expected to take the stand. We're expected to be willing to put ourselves in a defensive position for, on God's behalf. When you get time this afternoon... Just go into a, a, a biblical concordance or, or Google it on your tablet, phone, or whatever it is. Look up how many times we're instructed to stand in the New Testament. In particular, to stand firm. There is an expectation that we will take the stand for God. That's exactly what Elijah does. That's the very first thing he does to combat the spiritual famine of his culture. But he does something else, too. That's worth mentioning. He took a step of faith. Elijah took a step of faith. I want you to think for a moment. What prompted Elijah to step out of the shadows of obscurity and into the spotlight of Ahab's throne? You know, it's natural for us to assume that God specifically instructed Elijah to do this. And we think that because God instructed Isaiah to go and speak to Hezekiah in Isaiah 38. And God instructed Jeremiah to stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim this message in Jeremiah chapter 7. And we know in Jeremiah, I mean, excuse me, in Jonah chapter 1 and verse 2 that God specifically instructed Jonah to go to Nineveh and call out against it. But prior to 1 Kings chapter 17 and verse 1, where is the instruction that Elijah received from the Lord? It's interesting because the first reference to the word of the Lord coming to Elijah isn't until 1 Kings chapter 17 and verse 2, after Elijah appeared before King Ahab. So it's entirely possible that Elijah stepped out in this moment simply because he knew what the will of God was. It may not be that Elijah was specifically directed by God to go and do this. It may be that he just knew it was God's will. Listen to the way James describes the work of Elijah in James chapter 5 and verse 17. He says, Elijah prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on earth. James doesn't say that God told Elijah 
to pray for it not to rain. James makes it sound like Elijah initiated his prayer ministry all on his own. And that is possible. That is a possibility because Elijah, like every other Israelite, had already been told what God's will was on this matter. Immediately before the Israelites entered the land of Canaan, Moses told the people in Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 16 and 17, Take care lest your heart be deceived, and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain, and the land will yield no fruit, and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord is giving you. So it's entirely possible, it's entirely possible that Elijah began praying for it not to rain because he was praying for God to do what God had already said he would do when the culture started worshiping other little g gods. Elijah didn't necessarily need God to tell him to initiate this ministry. God had already revealed his will to Israel. So all Elijah really had to do was take a step of faith to start doing what God said, to be obedient to God's will, to step out of the shadows and to start living the way God intended for his people to live. And that step of faith for Elijah involved a prayer for there to be no more rain. That step of faith for Elijah involved presenting God's message. God's message of consequences for a people who refused to recognize him. And so Elijah...